Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome. Glad to have you with us today. This is the last day of Warren Litzman's study on Jesus and Paul. What a great study this has been. Now, don't forget, if you've missed any of these, or if you want to just go back to the beginning, go to our website, christ-life.org, and you'll find it right there. So, now, let's get into it. This is podcast number 171, and here is Warren. The thing about your Bible is that the truth in your Bible must be rightly divided. Now, that isn't easy to do because you're going to cross all the lines of denominations and doctrines and theologies, but you need to take Paul seriously on this. He says that unless the scriptures are rightly divided, you don't have the truth. Now, how, how do we rightly divide the scriptures? We got two words that speak to us on this. Two words. Prophecy and mystery. Those are the two words by which your Bible is divided. Now, the little book, The Unashamed Christian, deals with this in more detail but I need to put it before you because you may miss it and you'll never understand what I'm saying to you unless you have this scripture as a foundation in your understanding and as a focus as you see the scriptures. These, these are your key words Four-fifths of your Bible is prophecy. One-fifth deals with the mystery. Four-fifths of your Bible deals with things that have not yet in total come to pass. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and 12, where the first prophecies were made. So four-fifths of your Bible is prophetic. All prophecy belongs to Israel. The mystery belongs to the born again. Israel was, is, and always will be, as far as the scriptures are concerned, an earthly people. The born again have always been and always will be a heavenly people. When you read the scriptures, those are the key points to keep in mind. 
It is something between you and the Holy Spirit as to how you do this. But there are many helps you can get, and those helps can make a great difference in your understanding of the Scripture. So the first verse of Scripture that is most important to us in our spiritual growth is 2 Timothy 2 and 15. Now, let's get rid of this. And go to our second most important scripture. And that scripture is found in Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the joint and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. What does it say? Dividing soul and spirit. Another division you must make. Something you must keep divided. It's important that you see this. Soul is basically an Old Testament term. Hard on us to change our language. Soul is used very few times. I don't have the number in my mind right now. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, very few times, and hardly used at all by Paul. Why is that? Because soul is the way earthly people are Israel was saved. Their salvation was soulish. Now this takes us back to Second Timothy 2 and 15 where you need to rightly divide. In four-fifths of the Bible... There is not planned a new creation. There is not a spiritual miracle that takes place inside. It is soulish. God moving outside, God moving in their heart, but there is no change of nature, no incorruptible seed in four-fifths of the Scripture that deals with prophecy. Is only in that small portion that speaks to the born again. So it is Israel that must get their soul saved. Now can you see what's happened to us? We have such a commingling that much of our terminology of salvation centers in soul saved. What's the problem with that? Well, take a look at it here. Body, Paul gives us body soul, and spirit. The New Testament teaches that we are regenerated, that we become new creations. Where is that? In spirit, Christ in us. Our soul is not saved. That's the New Testament 
gospel. The Old Testament gospel centers in the change in your soul and heart. What is your soulish part? Intellect, will, and emotions. What's emotions? That's your heart. So what we have in Christianity is a commingling. We have soul-saving campaigns. That sounds good. We know what you mean by that, that people are going to be born again. But that's not scriptural, absolutely scriptural. Because the saving of the soul, Paul says, is a continuous thing. There's no birthing there. It's just you grow. It's the way it was in the Old Testament. Take David. He, uh, you read his, what is it, the 51st Psalm or so, and hear him cry out after he sinned. Well, that's the way it was with people who getting the soul saved. They felt good one day, bad the next. They were up one day, down the next. They were doing good one day and down the next, and repentance was the thing in between these two. They were always repenting because there was no spirit salvation. It was all soul salvation. So you have to fix that in your mind, you see, as you grow in the Scriptures, and that's how we divide the Scriptures. Uh, all the people that are in prophecy, to my knowledge, for I have not found where the Scripture speaks of this, but to my knowledge they will not be born again till after the millennium, and I have no Scripture for that. I don't know what happens in the new heavens and the new earth. But through the millennium, they remain an earthly people. The millennium is a restoral of Adam. You understand that? The way the Garden of Eden was before sin came in is the way the millennium will be. Well, that belongs to an earthly people. You and I are gone. We're with the Father in his house because we're a heavenly people. The word soul was what needed to be saved. Righteousness came through obedience in the Old Testament. That's a soulish thing. Look how we've commingled that. If you are faithful to God, you'll be righteous. But you see, that's soulish. That's Old Testament. That doesn't belong to grace because I'm not righteous by anything I do. Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, has been made unto me righteousness. So you see, it's a different gospel. It's a whole different understanding. But when you mix the two together, you got, as the saying is, a monkey on your back, and you're just always trying to shake it off to be doing something to become more righteous, always become more righteous. So soul is an Old Testament term, and what they did in the Old Testament was try to get their soul straight. Now, well, what about their spirit? Their soul held their spirit under subjection. That's a whole other understanding. We can't go into it right now. In their spirit... They still have the old nature. Now, you're going to come across Christian people who say we have the Christ nature and the sin nature still in us. That's what the Baptists teach, that you still have both. And I'm sure the Dutch Reformed teach that. That's a, a bit of Calvinism. That you still have the two natures operating in you. Why is that? That's a holdup from not rightly dividing the word of truth. Because, you see, they didn't know what to do here. If it was all soulish, then what are you going to do with spirit? So they said, well, we still got the old sin nature in us. And that's the way it was in the Old Testament. And that's why they were continually repenting. That's why in Pentecostalism we teach constant repentance. That's why when I pastored a church, uh, <clears throat> I tried to get souls saved 
<coughs> in the Sunday morning service. I had a big congregation. So I preached for souls on Sunday morning, and on Sunday night I preached for the saints to get saved again. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yes. So we had the two separated. <laughs> when I, when I, taught, I taught in, a, in a, a Pentecostal Bible college, the biggest in the States, and uh, I was kind of evangelistic and had a flair and all that sort of stuff when I was younger. And so, and so when we have teachers meeting, they would plan for somebody to speak on Monday morning chapel. The Monday morning chapel, several hundred kids there. And so Monday morning chapel was our most important chapel. And they'd say, well, we need to be real hardcore because no telling how they failed God and sinned and what they've done over the weekend. So we need a good evangelistic message. And most of the time they'd point to me and say, let's, when you get up and preach on, on Monday morning to try to get them all back to God. <laughs> Bible students, theology, junk. <laughs> so you have the division of soul and spirit. What happened when Paul came along? He said you have to divide these two, separate them. There's a difference between your outer growth and your inner miracle. Israel didn't have the inner miracle. You understand that? So when you read the Old Testament, you're reading about a gospel that was solely concerned with outer growth, and that's why you like it. That's why we preach there so much. It's outer growth. Let's uh, march around the walls of Jericho. Let's go through the Red Sea. Let's have faith in the wilderness. Uh, let's lick the giant. All of these things were outer, you see, because that's where the growth is in the Old Testament. It's soulish. They had no inner growth. To help you Bible students, remember, there are four covenants God gave to Israel. One of the covenants is called the New Covenant, not the new covenant in the New Testament, it's the new covenant in Jeremiah that was never before noted before it was written in Jeremiah, the final covenant given to Israel. What does it say? I will write my law in their hearts. I will give them a new heart. I will give them a new spirit. What is that? That's a covenant. It never took place. That's why Jesus had such a time with the cantankerous Jews. He came to his own, and his own received him not because they had no feeling for Jesus as life, as spirituality. It was all a national thing. It was all Moses' law. It was all an outer thing. And so Jesus could not appeal to them as he appeals to you and I by spirit because they, didn't, they hadn't had that to happen. If they had accepted their Messiah, they would have had a great revival. There would have been an inner turning to God. There would have been a born again, a change in their nature. So these are the two, were two things that deal with what must be divided and what you need to get in your mind when you read the Scriptures. You divide the Scriptures and you divide the soul and spirit. You stand perfect here. We're going to talk about this. You are perfect in spirit. You're growing in soul. And you will not be any better in body till the resurrection morning. You get a new body. 
So I have to leave that with you because that's so very important, and that's really been the underlying aspect of what I've had to talk to you about this week. Our main subject for the last day or so has been revelation knowledge. The background of this subject is that the Apostle Paul is really the first in the scriptures to develop the idea of spirit-taught knowledge. He's the first in the scripture to do that. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was always coming upon people. In the New Testament, people had the Holy Spirit. And now he wasn't a coming and a going thing. He was in them. They were filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit was their teacher. Constantly taking the believer into new knowledge and understanding. So I have to tell you that when the incorruptible seed was put in you, this seed like that, that seed, beautiful. When the incorruptible seed was put in you, it was perfect and it was complete. There is no more God to be put in you. You can't get any more out of God than what you have right now in the seed. I don't know how you're going to uh, see that, but just take it for what it's worth. There is no more power, there's no more grace, there's no more gifts, there's no more anything that comes from God than he has put in Christ for the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in Christ. So you can't get any more than is already in the seed. So change your language. Instead of saying, oh, I want more God. Don't ever say that. That must make God feel bad. You know, he's very personal to me. He's my father. And on the other hand, Christ is very personal to me. I think you sooner or later have got to form a love affair with the Jesus that's in you and be careful what you say and think. Because he's alive. He's alive. Does he have feelings? Sure he does. Oh, you didn't know Jesus in you had any feelings? Sure he does. So we're careful what we say. I don't run around saying, oh God, you failed me. That's impossible. He can't fail me. I may have my mind all warped and think he did something wrong, but he didn't. So I have to watch what I say and what I think. There is no more God for me. It's all in the seed. Then what's my trouble? My trouble's in my mind. Our problem is not a father problem. His work was perfect. Our problem is not a son problem or a eternal life problem. That's settled, that's finished. Our problem is a Holy Spirit problem. Now, Jesus, I told you this before, Jesus was very conscientious about this because he knew that the problem with human beings would be in the Holy Spirit. He knew that. That's why he said, do what you want with me, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, that's blasphemy. Why was he protecting the Holy Spirit? Because that would be the key to spiritual growth. 
That's the only way people would ever know anything about God would be by the Holy Spirit. If you don't hear from the Holy Spirit, then you're going to get what some man thought. You understand that? My mission is not to try to tell you anything, but to point you to the Holy Spirit. He's your teacher. All these things I've talked to you about, if the Holy Spirit doesn't converge in your mind and begin to make you think of it, wake up in the middle of the night, think of it on the job, even get mad at me at times, all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Recognize that. He is settling and straightening out and organizing and teaching you. That's his mission. Quit trying to use him to your own personal good and let him do something to you and for you that has to do with the Christ in you. The Apostle Paul was the first to ever see this. He was the first to come into this kind of understanding. So what the Holy Spirit basically does for you through a right dividing of the Scriptures and dividing of the soul and spirit is put you into a place that you see Christ as life. Now, some people in the Christ life have uh, tried to develop something out of this, and I, I don't like it. But I'll say it like this. There, for instance, some think, well, there are two different uh, levels of the Christ life, and I don't like that. There's only one life, and it's Christ. But there may be two levels of understanding in the Christ life. The first level is where you find out Christ is your life. Now, a lot of people at that stage who are always talking about the Christ life, preachers, many preachers are at the stage where they talk about Christ in you because there are 146 scriptures that you couldn't read without seeing the in Christ position. So they're not blind. They see it and they talk about it. So there is the outer understanding of being in Christ. Still not revelatory, but an outer understanding. The Bible says we're in Christ. Sure, I believe we're in Christ. Charismatic preachers always holler that. Oh, we're all in Christ. Christ lives in every one of us. Come and get your healing. You see, that's a commingling. So everybody sees that. But there is a second level of understanding, and that's when you can come to the place that you not only say Christ is your life, but you're ready to say Christ is your only life. Now, Paul doesn't make that distinction. I do. Because I have, in the years I've been teaching Christ, I have seen this materialize. That the first level of understanding that people come to is, yes, I can see I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. But they've not yet come to that level where they see he is their only life. Well, it takes time for that. I mean, that's not something you're going to get in a flash. That's not going to come by word of knowledge or word of faith. That's going to come by living. That's going to come by revelation knowledge, seeing your death. The more you see your death, the more you see his life in you. And now that takes us to the key scripture, Galatians 
The more you see your death, the more you see his life. The more you see your death, you've got to be careful that you don't transfer that into victory, joy, and happiness. This is what happened to so many. The more you see your death, the more you see his life, not your blessing, not your victory, not your good. I never tell you now, if you want to be real happy, if you want great victory, do this or do that. Because you see, the Christ life is spontaneous. If it's something you put on, if it's something you try to do, it's not the real you. So if it isn't the real you, it isn't the real him as you. How is Christ going to come out of you like you are? So if you try to be religious, if you try to act righteous, it isn't the real Jesus. So what you have to be careful of, that in seeing his death, you don't exchange it for victory on your part. Bless God, I'm dead. I don't have to do that anymore. No, you're dead so his life might come. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified. I am dead. It doesn't say I'm dying and I'm going to get victory. It says I'm dead. I am crucified with, W-I-T-H, circle that. That's the key word, with him. The word with there is to keep you from ever seeing that it isn't finished. The word with says it's finished. How crucified are you? As dead as he was with him. You don't say the Lord's working on me. I always detested that little thing that the Lord isn't finished with me yet. He's still working on me. Well, that's really a soulish thing, and he is still working on us soulishly. But we didn't interpret it like that. We said, well, we don't have all of God. He's still working on me. That isn't a truism. Fact is, he's through with us inside. It's done. It's finished. That's what the cross did. So when I say I died with Christ, I'm crucified with Christ, my death and my crucifixion is not explained by what happened to me. It's explained by what happened to him. My death is not pivotal on what happened to me. It's pivotal on what happened to him. That's what the word with means. You see, when he hang on the cross, I didn't see a one of you there. I didn't see me there. But the scripture says, Paul says, we were in him. We died with him. When he died, we were in him, having been poured in him, that everything that was a part of us would be finished and done away with. I am crucified with Christ. 
Now, we're at the third stage of revelation knowledge. At this third stage, I call it seeing Christ as our life or seeing Christ as me. Now, I never become Christ, and Christ never becomes me, but I contain Christ. You understand that? I can now say, Christ is my life. How does that work? Here's a glass of water. A glass of water. A glass of water is really one thing. For instance, in my mind, I didn't pick up an empty glass and say to myself, I'm going to take this glass and I'm going to take this water and I'm going to pour this water in this glass and then I will have water in a glass. I don't need to do that because I can simply say I have a glass of water, one thing. But what is very obvious, this one thing is made up of two parts. I've made it one thing. In my language, I say it, a single one glass of water, one thing. But it's made up of two things. That's what I am. I am a glass, an empty glass, a container, an earthen vessel. When I was born again, a seed was placed in me. I often say the Holy Spirit put the seed in me. And I have no scripture for that other than the fact that the scripture says the Holy Spirit placed the seed in Mary. So let's say the seed was placed in this cup. They were two things. That was him and this was me. But now, by the grace of God, I can say these two things, him and me are one thing. I am a Christian. What is a Christian? One in whom Christ lives. So while it will always be two things, so that the water never becomes the glass and the glass never becomes the water, they will always be two things. But he that is joined to the Lord is one. So when I put the water in the glass, it is one. A glass of water. Do you understand that? Now, in Christ's position says Christ is in us. You've got the water in the glass. So that's the first level of understanding. Yes, Christ is in me. You will not find, I don't think, a Baptist preacher who won't say Christ is in them. You'll find very few Pentecostal preachers who will say Christ is in them because they'll say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. They may mean the same thing. When I came to the end of my denomination, I met with all the hierarchy because I was a big shot preacher at that time and they weren't going to let me go any further till they understood what I was saying. And honestly, I was so new in the Christ life, I didn't know what I was saying. <laughs> and I met with them a whole day, about 30 or 40 theologians, and tried to explain it to them. 
and really didn't make much headway. And finally they stopped and said, well, we just think he's found a new understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit and dropped it there. So if you wonder why I'm so outspoken at times about this subject, it's because I've been through the mill on coming to that understanding. It is not just being filled with the Holy Spirit, though that's wonderful and good. What it is, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit places us in this glass. For by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body. Who did the work? The Holy Spirit. Who produced the sperm? The Father. Who received the sperm? The believer. So, I don't like the idea that there's two levels on anything. I never have believed that. All my life I have fought this two different levels where somebody thought they were bigger or better than somebody else. Uh, we first went through a thing in the New Order, the latter rain way back there, and everybody thought they had something special from God that the others didn't have. And then we went into a sonship thing where some were higher sons than others, and and uh, I can uh, just reiterate a whole lot of things that's happened in the last 55 years that I've been in this thing. Uh, but the longer I've lived, the more I have seen that the seed, the one seed is total and all and there's no more. So the difference is what you think of that seed and how you react to it. So everybody can, can read the scriptures and see the in Christ position. But now Galatians 2.20 takes us beyond being in Christ to where Christ is total. Christ is total. He not only is my life now, I am seeing at this stage he is my only life. That's the ultimate. Do you ever get there? No. Nope. Because in position to God, you're already there. In spirit, you're already there, perfect. It's in soul where you do all your thinking, doubting, peering, loving, hating, in your soul that you're not yet there. So this is what grows. This is what has no growth. It stands perfect. So the third stage of revelation knowledge is seeing Christ as life and eventually seeing him as your only life. Now let that take hold of you. Don't make plateaus out of it and say, well, I've reached third level. You don't want to be a mason. You want to say to anybody born again, Anybody who's saved, who says they're saved, even if you don't think they look like they're saved, we homeless people have got to get our minds away from that sort of thing. You've got to quit judging who's saved and who isn't saved. If a fool looks at me and says and confesses, yes, I'm saved, the scripture said for me to believe him. If he's a nut, believe him. If he's a liar, I believe him. If he lied, he lied to God and he'll pay for it. But how am I to take it? Okay, 
You tell me you're saved. If you're not going to live it, look like it, or act like it, that's between you and God. I don't have to fellowship with you, but God bless you. I'd have to say Jesus is in you if that's the truth. See? We don't have to run around anymore classifying people. That's That's the great blessing of the Christ life. Once you get out of denominating and stereotyping who people are and what they are, you've got a great liberty. <clears throat> a great liberty comes to you. The monkey begins to get off your back then because you don't, you don't have to look at everybody and worry about them. If you lie to me about your position in Christ, you're a fool. If you lie to yourself, you're an imbecile. If you lie to God, you're lost. I don't go any good to lie. But if you know you're saved, I'll immediately say, I see Jesus in you. Just that simple. Because I'm not going to argue over it. And one good thing about the Christ life, <clears throat> our criterion is not service. Our criterion is knowing in whom we have believed. In service, everybody's worried about the guy under them, next to them, or over them. And you kind of get relieved of that. You can live. You know, I think most Christians have never really lived. They don't know what spontaneous living is. They only know how to live by the rule. I've seen fellows in America that were in the service for years, and once they got out of the service, they couldn't live among normal people because there was no rules there. They didn't know how to get up and go in the morning. (laughs) So revelation knowledge leads you from seeing Christ as life to seeing him as your only life. That's a process. I don't know where one starts and the other ends, so don't try to make a specific thing out of it. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, Christ liveth in me. I want you to mark some things in your Bible about Christ living in you and how the Scripture teaches that. This little Scripture search here won't help you if you don't have an old King James Bible because it will read differently. Mark Matthew 5 and 48. Listen to Jesus talking to the Jews. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now you know what that scripture is? That scripture is right in the big middle of the Constitution for the kingdom message. But look how this one scripture stands out. He's telling a group of people that cannot possibly be perfect to be perfect as their Father in heaven. Two things he's telling them. He's telling the Jews to be perfect, which they cannot be, for they cannot keep the law, which is their basis of relationship to God. 
and he's pointing them to the Father, and they don't want to believe that God is the Father. They still want Abraham to be the Father at this juncture. Why is Jesus doing this? Because that's a part of the final true gospel, that we will be as perfect as the Father is perfect. How in the world can I be as perfect as he is? Two reasons. I have his seed, sperm, in me. I have his nature, a partaker of God's nature in me. Where am I perfect? Only in spirit. Mark 2 Corinthians 13 and 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. <laughs> How do you like that bluntly? When I leave you, I'm going to look at you and say, be perfect. That's what you are. Why don't you be it? 2 Corinthians 13 and 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Oh, I can't read this verse without thinking about Hebrews 4 and 3, 2, 3, 4, and 5, where Paul said, uh, God swore that he'd have some that entered into this rest. Somebody says, what is it about you Christ-like people? What is it that's so different? What do you think so different? And I always say, I don't know whether it's different or not, but I said, I'll tell you what about Christ-like believers. They've entered into their rest. They got this business settled about being saved, about being full of God. They're settled on that. What is it? We've begun to recognize that we're perfect in spirit. You say, well, you don't look perfect to me. You're right, I don't, never will. But the part of me you don't see that is my life is Christ, and he is perfect. He's perfect. Ephesians 4 and 13. Ephesians 4 and 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This verse didn't say that our spirit was imperfect. It said soulishly we are growing and coming into what? The fullness and the measure of the stature of Christ. Where is this Christ? He's already in me. He's my life. What am I doing soullessly? I'm coming into that. Well, let me get on a soapbox for a moment. Unity. I never read that word that I don't like to tell full gospel people and charismatic people and anybody for that matter that's interested in unity where the unity is. We think unity is between churches and preachers and organizations. Isn't that right? How many people we have praying today in South Africa that there would be unity? Well, that's it. 
That's the last section of this wonderful series of teachings from Warren Litzman on Jesus and Paul. How fascinating and wonderful this has been. But next week, we'll be starting something new, a new series of lessons from Warren that will be just as exciting. Let me remind you again to go to our website, christ-life.org, christ-life.org. If you've missed any of these or just want to start over again, you'll find them right there archived at our website. And don't forget to go to the bookstore and look at that book on Paul. That would be a great book for you to have at home. I have my copy at home and I cherish it. Well, we'd like to thank Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these special teaching sessions from Warren. Also, Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And our program is produced weekly by the wonderful Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life.